altitude you want. And funnily enough, the, the day that I got it and had it set up, I immediately went to max elevation, which I think was 14,000 feet. And I woke up at like 2.30 in the morning, gasping for air because my body had not adapted to it yet. Like, my heart was racing. I was like, okay, I need to, I need to bring this down. You I think work I, up I, to it. Yeah, I brought it, brought it, brought it down to 7,000 feet and slept the next night. And then I, I sort of incrementally increased it over the course of Welcome to Innovation and Leadership, where I interview uncommonly high achievers like top investment fund managers, elite special operations soldiers, startup CEOs who sold their companies for billions of dollars, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, really as many different kinds of experts as I can. The whole idea is to hear how they did it and then what advice they have for the rest of us that can be applied to the organizations we're trying to grow and innovate. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed today's show. Excited to have my friend Brad Mills back on the show. Brad, thanks for doing this. My pleasure. Happy to be here. Yeah, I think it's been about 400 or 450 episodes since we had you on last. So I figure it's it's good time. Good timing to have you back. Yeah, we're due. So I want to talk about a bunch of things today. And and I'm guessing a lot of people maybe didn't hear your episode a few a few years back. So let's I want to talk about entrepreneurship. I want to talk about sales skills. But but let's talk. Let's start with your hockey career. Tell us about growing up Alberta, Canada and where that led. Sure. Yeah, well, I started uh, playing in small town. Terrace, BC. But yeah, moved to Calgary, somewhere between third and fourth grade, started playing my minor hockey here, went up to the ranks. And then when I was 17, I moved up to Fort McMurray for junior, played junior A for the Oil Barons for three seasons, longer than I had originally planned due to some injuries that sort of delayed my path to the NCAA, but got recruited by Yale University, played four years there. And then signed with the Devils as a free agent. Went undrafted as an 18-year-old in Fort McMurray, Alberta. Surprise, surprise. Not a lot of exposure. But played eight seasons professionally. And then my wife and I were expecting our first baby. And I had some offers to play in Europe. But we decided we didn't want to have our our first child in, in Germany or Austria or wherever else we would have wound up. And a close friend of mine was working for... Excel Partners, which is a VC firm down in Silicon Valley. And he suggested, encouraged me to explore the the technology space. He thought I might be good as a sales professional and he thought it might be a good fit for me. Gave me some good advice. I wound up joining Salesforce as a sales development rep, worked my way up to BDR, account executive. I know I'm throwing out a lot of perhaps obscure technology sales terms here, but spent just under three years at Salesforce and then moved over to the consulting side of the business where I was working with customers who were interested in purchasing Salesforce, but they needed some help implementing that solution within their organization. And so we do the services work. I spent two years there and then almost a year ago now, I joined Google Cloud. So we do infrastructure as a service, platform as a service, software as a service. There's about... 2,000 different solutions that, you know, I have in my bag to sell. So I, I tend not to get too deep in terms of the, the actual software or the technology side of it. It's more strategy, vision for these organizations, what sort of business problems they're trying to solve and what we have uh, in our portfolio that can help support that. So I've got a whole bunch of things I want to talk about today, but starting on the NHL side. So, you know, 
I think a lot of folks who don't know, you know, a pro athlete or something aren't as familiar with how, how it works getting called up and sent back down and all the back and forth. And I, I certainly didn't understand as much until we became friends. When you think, so of all the teams that you got called up to, to play NHL, so who was that? It was Devils? The Devils and then the Blackhawks in Chicago. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, one of the things that's always been interesting to me about you is kind of like your willingness to accept what's the, like your willingness to like the humility to accept, accept the current state without whining and then do what it takes to get to the next level. Like, can you talk about like sleeping in tents in the summer, for instance? Yeah, I, I got the nickname serial killer or Dexter for sleeping in that tent. I think I think it it resembled Dexter's Kill Room, if you've seen that show on Showtime. Yeah, one of the things that I identified pretty early on was that in terms of my skill, talent level relative to some of my peers or people that I was competing with for you know, an NHL job, um, the one thing that I felt that I had absolute control over was my work ethic and what I was doing off the ice in order to make sure that I was as physically fit as possible. And my VO2 max was, I would say, average to you know, potentially below average for you know, highly trained elite hockey players. And I'd actually had a conversation when I was going through the application process for Stanford Business School with Anthony Gonzalez, who played wide receiver at Ohio State and then for the Indianapolis Colts. And I saw an ESPN somewhat, I don't know if it was a 30 by 30 or some sort of documentary where they you know, followed him around and he had this altitude tent that he'd slept in. And I thought it was interesting. I didn't know if it was a gimmick or if it was real, but I had a conversation with him going through the application process because he had gone or he was in his second year at Stanford Business School at the time. And he's like, oh yeah, it was incredible. I was having my blood tested by doctors and you know, I saw a substantial increase in red blood cell count and my VO2 max went up X percent. So I was like, okay, well, I'm a, a hockey player, but I look at my hockey career as like I'm an independent corporation. So I'm going to invest in this technology and this tool to try to increase my chances of success and earning potential as a hockey player. So yeah, I, I pretty much spent my afternoons in there reading and slept in there at 14,000 feet. And when I showed up to training camp the following fall, my VO2 max had increased 13% since the last time it had been tested. So, I mean, the proof was in the pudding. It, it, it worked. It's, it's sort of incremental increase as you're training and sleeping in the tent. So you don't notice it like a black and white light switch. But when I, when I had the test done in training camp, that was, that was all the proof that I needed. So, yeah, I mean, I was always looking for an edge, always looking for a way to uh, gain an advantage point that looking at it as like, you know, I'm, I'm not fit enough or I'm not gifted enough or, I'm not drafted and all these other guys are getting opportunities over me. Uh, yeah. It comes back to a mentality I've tried to bring to everything that I pursue is what can I control and you know, can I focus my energy and efforts on things that I can influence versus you know, wallowing that my parents weren't taller or <laughs> didn't hand down the genetic gifts that my opponents have. It's interesting how much time we can spend wallowing if we let ourselves, right? Well, it can be all of your time if you're not careful. And like candidly, I spend 
still a significant amount of my mind share is wishing things weren't the way they are or circumstances were different or I had this or that or the other thing. But over time, I've certainly found as I've grown up and matured that that latency or that gap between when I start, you know, thinking negatively to when I recognize it and get back on track, that that window is, has shrunk considerably. And I, I sort of try to use that as a barometer of you know how mentally and, and spiritually centered am I? Because if I'm having negative emotions, it's typically the result of some sort of you know, psychological lack of focus or focus in the wrong direction. Yeah. I want to go back to your previous story for just a minute. So an altitude tent, is it, it basically just, the, it simulates 14,000 feet elevation because it's reducing the amount of oxygen inside the tent. Is that basically what it's doing? Yeah, the, the tent is essentially a sealed environment and there is a large mechanical filter that is scrubbing oxygen out of the air that it's feeding into the tent. So, you know, you're breathing out CO2 in there, but the air that's coming in has higher nitrogen percentage, lower oxygen percentage, which although there's not diminished pressure from an elevation perspective, it's somewhat equivalent to being at whatever altitude you want. And funnily enough, the, the day that I got it and had it set up, I immediately went to max elevation, which I think was 14,000 feet. And I woke up at like 2.30 in the morning gasping for air because my body had not adapted to it yet. And like, <gasps> my heart was racing. I was like, okay, I need to, I need to bring this down. I think I <laughs> Work up to it. Yeah. I brought it, brought it, brought it down to 7,000 feet and slept the next night. And then I, I sort of incrementally increased it over the course of, you know, three or four weeks. And I know I hear the term, but I don't actually know what it means. VO2 max. I'm assuming it has to do something with like how much oxygen your red blood cells can pull out of your lungs. Yeah, it's essentially your body's ability to um, absorb oxygen from the air that you're breathing. And that's primarily driven by your red blood cell count, which is where the oxygen is stored. So you breathe in through your lungs and then that oxygen gets pulled out by your lungs, but it gets stored in red blood cells. The higher your red blood cell count, the more oxygen you can store, which you know increases your endurance essentially. So yeah, it's 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 a fairly complicated process, and there was a lot of googling and you know reading and research papers before I dropped the you know, four thousand dollars or whatever it was for the tent, which my brother is now using because he's gotten super into mountaineering and he's now claiming significant benefits in his hiking. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, you know, I, I, we've talked a little bit about this once, but I don't know if I've ever asked you this. Uh, when you think about well, how old were you when you had your first NHL goal? Eleven, approximately. I think I was twenty-seven. Twenty-seven or twenty-eight. Okay. Twenty. What year did you start playing hockey? Like, how old were you when you started playing hockey? I was five in eighty-eight. Yeah, good year. I was living in Edmonton during the Gretzky years. It's a good, good time to be a hockey fan if you lived in Edmonton, right? You know, I was too busy snowboarding and doing competitive judo and stuff, but I had tons of friends around me playing hockey. You know, growing up in Alberta. And I mean, even at recess in elementary school in 88, you know, we would be, we play soccer at recess, but we'd all like claim which oiler we were like, oh, I'm Yuri Curry. Oh, I'm Gretzky. <laughs> like we, we called ourselves hockey players as we played soccer at recess. Like it was an obsession, right? I'm interested in what that emotion was like 22 years into your hockey career, making your first NHL goal. It was surreal. Yeah. 
I don't, you know, I, I try not to project or try and read the minds of other people, but, and, I, and I'm sure there's, there's many guys that played that had similar experience to me where for 95% of my hockey career, it was a outside chance. Like there was this minuscule like dream that I was keeping alive. Right. Like I didn't fully believe it. Like I, I, I believed it enough to keep pursuing it, but a large part of me was, you know, okay with and ready for it not happening. Right. It was like, I just want to play one game. Like I'll do whatever it takes to play one game. And then I played one game and I was like, I need to play here every day. <laughs> and, and yeah, so like, had I grown up and I'd always been the best player and like I was a highly touted prospect that was drafted as an 18 year old and signed an entry level deal and got a big signing bonus. It's like everyone expects you to play. Nobody expected me to play people actually that, you know, I, I love and trust like my parents were trying to softly suggest that this might not be the path for you. So, you know, even when your parents tell you like, Hey, mate, it's probably not going to happen. I, I had to be the one to have the faith that if I did everything within my power to make it happen, I could live the rest of my life knowing that I'd given it my all, whether or not it panned out. And so when it did happen and when I scored that first goal, it felt a little bit like a dream. Like it didn't quite feel real. And I, I, I remember vividly a ringing in my ears. You know, it, we were in Chicago and I was playing for the devils at the time. And so the whole stadium, you know, whatever, 20,000 people, it's one of, it's one of the louder stadiums in the NHL was completely silent, except for maybe my brother who was going nuts at the other end of the ring. But yeah, it was just like a hush fell over the crowd and it was like, like a little bit of shell shocked and it didn't really set in for hours and hours afterwards where I was like you know, back in my room and, you know, go reading text messages from friends and family that were congratulating me. And it was very satisfying. I can say, I can tell you that, but in the moment it was, it was almost like I was watching a movie rather than living. You know, yeah. I'm, I'm interested to understand more of your mindset at the time because you know that that you've got these you've got these conflicting thoughts of like man maybe I'm almost good enough but you know I, like I'm interested in the conflict between the odds are stacked against me this is not something that there's widespread belief I'm going to pull off like the the rationality to be honest about probabilities and yet the decision to choose faith and to push anyways can you talk about that the juxtaposition of those conflicting thoughts yeah it's a great question. And the first thought that came to my mind was a quote that I really held on to, and it really resonated with me. And I think it's applicable in a lot of different ways, but in this instance, I, I may, I'm going to paraphrase and I may not get it hundred percent accurate, but I think it's a native American quote. It was like, there's two wolves that exist in all of us. One, one good, one evil, or whatever the case may be. And it's like, well, which one wins? It's the one that we decide to feed. And yeah, it was constant self-doubt and uncertainty, but I sort of always came back to, well, there's this strong voice telling me that this is possible. So I'm going to listen to that. Sorry, I'm getting a little emotional. But. Yeah. No, you think about anybody like, you know, this show, we're full of people who have accomplished something on average, right? You know, we had this great woman who won the national kickboxing championships. We've had 
Olympians and people who have built billion dollar companies and, you know, people who achieve on average things. And just as we were talking today, I was thinking, man, there's, it feels like there's some very similar aspects of none of those outcomes were guaranteed, you know, and, and there's so many of us that have to face something like that when you're doing something other than doing what you're told, waiting in line, climbing the ladder that everybody else is climbing. There's got to be so much uncertainty in so many of the endeavors, probably most of the high achiever endeavors, right? And yet there's this other part of us that, I don't know, like, I know we can't force the future to happen, but there is some aspect of like, almost like ignoring the statistics and giving it your all anyways, that has like, it has more of an effect than it should or something. I don't know. That's just my observation. Do you disagree? Do you see it differently? No. When I think about it, my belief, and again, a lot of this is anecdotal on my own experience, but a lot of our you know, fear, insecurity, doubt is what holds us back from achieving anything, right? And although I've achieved certain things, like I've fallen short in a lot of areas, and it's, it's fairly obvious to me that that hasn't been a lack of aptitude or capability, but a lack of desire and focus to push through some of that fear, uncertainty, and doubt. And yeah, I, I think that it's probably fairly common when you get into pursuing big dreams, aspirational goals, the path of least resistance is to give up. And there were times where, you know, I was at a breaking points and thought about throwing in the towel, but I always came back to that idea that it doesn't matter what the ultimate outcome is. If I can look myself in the mirror and say that I did everything that I could, that, that I'm satisfied with that. Like I don't, I don't need to achieve the goal. If I do everything to give myself the best chance of succeeding, then I will never have regret. I'll never have, you know, shoulda, coulda, wouldas. And I think I'm now remembering the the last episode we did over five years ago now. And uh, I remember saying that there is far too much time, at least in my life, where I've, I've spent worrying about the outcome rather than enjoying the journey. And I even find it in my, my current job. You know, we're in the middle of a pandemic. I'm in sales. I thrive on face-to-face interpersonal interactions, so building relationships, trust, and having to do all this remotely and spending time thinking like, oh, if this pandemic wasn't happening or whatever. And then again, five seconds later, we go like, don't fall into that. Like, enjoy the journey. Enjoy what you're learning. Enjoy the, the tasks that you have to complete today. Because when I think back about sitting in my hotel room in New Jersey, having made the team, you know, achieved some crazy dream that nobody thought was possible and feeling like, well, is this it? Like, I'm not perpetually, infinitely fulfilled. Like, I, I feel kind of disappointed right now. Like, what was all that pain and suffering and what was it for? Like, I'm, I'm still here. I still got all the same fear, uncertainty and doubt about my future. And am I going to meet my wife? Am I going to have a family? Like, am I going to be you know, wealthy beyond my wildest dreams. Like there's all these things I'm still dissatisfied with. And so I think about that often is if you're not enjoying the journey and your happiness is dependent upon some outcome or destination, then, you know, 99.9% of your life is wasted because that satisfaction and fulfillment and joy of when I accomplished my dream, it only lasted two, maybe three weeks, but it took, like you said, 23 plus years to achieve. So yeah, I, I don't even, I can't even remember the question you asked. 
before I went on that rant, but that's, that's what jumped out to me. Well, I really appreciate the response. You know what it makes me think a lot about is in conflict resolution, you know, conversations that I have with other CEOs who are, you know, whether it's a lawsuit, whether it's a problem, just, just some big problem. And they, you know, we're, we're discussing it and, and certainly my own conflict situations. I think about some of the best advice I ever received was like, do what's right and let the consequences follow. Like have high integrity, do what you actually feel good about if you weren't upset. <laughs> you know, like, like do something to like hijack your emotions until you're not upset anymore, then come back and think about it. And, and from that place, decide what you think the right thing to do is no matter what it costs you. And you can't guarantee that, that it's going to make things go well, but no matter what happens, you can at least feel confident that you did what you thought you should do. And then real life takes its course. And it's interesting how when I've tried to control the outcome of a conflict, or I've been advising someone who's trying to control the outcome of a conflict, I mean, you cannot escape the stress because we can't control other humans, right? And, and yet, when you can get to this place of like, I honestly know that I've done what I thought I should have done, and I did all of it, whatever's going to happen is going to happen now. Even when things don't go great, people are so much more peaceful after that point, in my observation. Do you have any thoughts about that? I think the, the last thing you said, like peaceful, right? That's been my experience. Like that's when you strip away everything else, that's what I'm after is a feeling of, of peace that like I've done the best I can or I've made the right decision with all the information that I had at hand. But so often we've got all these other ideas and, you know, influences swirling around in our minds. Like I, I need this deal to close or, you know, we need to win this case or it's like, no, you don't like life will continue. The world will continue to spin. The sun will rise. Like, but can you be okay with any outcome because of how you've handled yourself or conducted yourself in whatever situation you're facing conflicts or otherwise you know there's those great sorry finish your thought no i was i was just going to say that when when you approach things from that perspective of like what am i ultimately after it's like there's not a lot higher you can aim than than peace and serenity about your decisions when you focus on you know money or something else and then you have no peace or you have no serenity around the outcome that you thought you wanted, I think that's where you see the evidence that like, oh, maybe I was, I was focused on the wrong thing. Yeah. Um, makes me think about, I don't know if this was in the last dance or where it was, but I've got this like YouTube playlist of all these things to like mentally hijack myself when I'm like procrastinating or I'm not feeling like doing my job. <laughs> I was like, I have this whole playlist of like these like motivational videos. Okay. And a few of them are, are Michael Jordan videos. And I don't know if this is from the last dance or where it is, where he said something like, I don't always have to win the game, but I have to know that I gave it my all. And that could be cliche, but when you hear it in his voice with his voice inflections, I like really believe it, you know, when he says it. Yeah. Well, one of the greatest champions of all time, it's hard to dismiss what he says out of hand. Well, it, it's interesting because he was so competitive and he was so interested in the results. It's interesting to hear that because you don't you don't often hear that about him. Do you know what I mean? Like that's not that's not what typically you when you hear about Michael Jordan, you hear Michael Jordan quotes. That's not typically one of the top ones that comes up, right? You know, I know we're winding down for a part one of the interview here. I think my next question is applied in the business world. You know, you've started businesses, you've done 
uh, things with big tech companies. I'm interested in how that, you know, essentially 23 years of mindset training has assisted you as you've taken on new challenges of, you know, learning new business sports. Well, it's a big question. So I'm, I'm trying to get my thoughts in order here, but I think it's a most apparent in, in my approach to the day-to-day. Like it's, it's all fine and dandy to set like long-term goals, intermediate-term goal. But yeah, my experience with it has been that can be a distraction from like, what's the next thing that I need to do? And my college hockey coach, Tim Taylor, he had a quote on our door to our locker room when we were heading out to the ice that said, get better today. And I love that because every day we went out to practice, I'd see that and I, you know, could be coming off a bad game. I could be going through a slump. We could be, you know, facing a team that we had no chance of beating on the weekend, but I could get better that day. I could go out and execute as best as I could in practice and try to improve and take those incremental micro wins. And now that I'm in enterprise technology sales, where some of these cycles are, you know, 18 months long, one of my accounts, you know, I had a call with the CIO and he's like, Hey, Brad, like, you know, it's great to meet you. you know, I'm looking forward to getting to know you and, and working together but I got to be completely transparent. I don't want to waste your time. I know you've got other accounts and you have your own targets you need to hit. Our capital plan is fully deployed for the next two years. I've got no money to spend with Google for at least the next 18 months. So I'm like, okay, I'm not going to make my year with this account in all likelihood unless something crazy happens, but there's little things that I can do. I can set time aside to think about ways that I can help this customer and put together a point of view that, I'll present in a quarter or in two quarters and start to build some momentum towards when some budget does become available or when a problem comes up that only we can solve. Whereas, you know, I think a lot of people might take that and be like, okay, well, I'm not going to think about or work on that account for the next 18 months because he told me he's got no money for 18 months. So yeah, it's it's like this interesting book. I can't remember the author right now, but it's all about stoicism. I think it's the obstacle is the way. By Ryan Holiday? Yes. I love that book so much. Yeah, so good. And yeah, so I try to I try to bring that mindset because yeah, things can change in sales in the blink of an eye. You know, you can have a, a deal that you think is all wrapped up and then force majeure at the one yard line and it all falls apart. And, and the other side of it is like, you know, there's there's no path forward and there's no crack in the armor there's there's no way of of getting through and then you know you chip away and you just keep doing the inputs and putting one foot in front of the other and then i guess that's the other the other piece of it is if if you don't have the outcome clearly in mind it can be very challenging to put the effort in with no promise of success to your point like how do you take insurmountable odds and then carry on in the face of that. And I think part of that is going back to what am I actually after? Am I after this deal or am I going to put my head on my pillow every night with a sense of peace and serenity, knowing that like I did what I could control, like I controlled what I could and I tried to make some forward progress and I'm satisfied with that. Jordan said like, it's not so much the win, but am I doing everything that I can? And you're not going to win every game. You're not going to make every shot. You're not going to win every deal. But you can lay awake at night 
thinking about all the things that you should have done that day. Or you can lay down and say like, okay, I did everything that I could and I'm going to sleep soundly. And get up the next day and get better today. It's funny to me. I do these podcasts and I have these like people that I look up to so much. These authors, I've read their books 20 times or, you know, people who, who have become the billionaire entrepreneur that, that I've kind of, you know, really look up to. And they say things that are not shockingly different than what we've all heard from growing up and, or from the business media or whatever, but they just live it so much harder that it works for them. You know, like you're, that thing on your coach that your coach put on the door, right? Like who, who has not heard something like that in their life? But for some reason, you actually implemented it. It's like, it's not about knowing it. It's about what do we practice enough times to, to shape ourselves on, right? Yeah, it's, and it's like anything. You can know, you can know everything about yoga and, you know, uh, have you don't, complete, complete mental like knowledge of something. But without practice, like there's a, there's that other quote, right? Like ideas are worthless. Execution is everything. Uh, <laughs> and, and I think that is what differentiates the, you know, extremely successful from the, the middling, moderately successful is like, they don't just skew platitudes and, and like say one thing and then, you know, not actually follow through. It's they put the work in. They actually believe their own their own philosophy, and they they put it into practice. And I mean, I look up to a lot of those people. I aspire to be better. You know, I still fall short in so many ways, and I think that's the other side of it is when I feel like I'm falling short, not beating myself up about it because that's a that's a downward spiral recipe for disaster. It's like okay, you're al- you're already underperforming your own expectations, and now you're wasting time and energy and like your, your thought and focus on beating yourself up for that. Like go put your shoes on and go for a run, like do something productive with that energy. Okay. We're going to end part one here. Let's start part two with that. Cause I want to talk about that. Okay? okay. 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 Everybody please tune into part two. Brad, thanks for doing this.